think I need to do a little bit of coaching this morning. Uh, the churches I, every church I've been a part of, we, the, the, the preaching moment isn't merely a monologue, it's a dialogue where we interact together around our great God. The song says, I need more of you. Is there anybody that can agree with that this morning? We need more of our great God this morning. I bring you greetings uh, from Epiphany Candon. My name is Bobby Morgan. I have the pleasure of serving as the uh, communications director there. Um, if, if I could say anything, anytime that you interact with folks in a church, it's a statement about the pastor. How they greet you, how they love you, how they serve you, even when they've never seen you before in their life. And if anything I can say about uh this branch of Zion is that uh, you have a great pastor. I give honor to uh, Pastor Derek in his leadership. I remember watching him talk about coming here, and it was just a vision in his mind. He thought about it, and he, he thought that, you know, he felt the Lord leading him. And now to see what God is doing is just a, a wonder that... Um, that God is going to do some tremendous things through Epiphany Wilmington. Do y'all believe that? I'm looking forward to seeing what God is going to do and, and, and know that I will be cheering you on every step of the way. Um, before we dive into today's message, would you pray with me that we invite the Lord's blessing on this time? Father, we, we come thanking you thanking you for who you are. God, that you you are so awesome that we can't just call you by one name. You are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. You are Jehovah Nisi. God, you are our refuge. You are our strong tower, God. You are everything we need and more. So as a song and the cry of our hearts is that we need more of you, God, we, we are grateful that You don't exhaust yourself. You are inexhaustible, God. So, Lord, whatever we stand in need of, God, I I know that you can provide. God, would you do what I cannot, God, and that is reach the heart of your people. I I am but clay in your hands. I am but a microphone to your mouth, God. Would you speak through me to these, your people? Now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart forever be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. Those agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen, amen. amen. I invite you, please, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. While you're turning there, um, Let me just tell you a little bit about myself and uh, get out the way so we can see Jesus. Um, My name is Bobby Morgan, husband of one, father of two, and uh, I'm done. We are out of that game. Uh, Two is enough for me. The Lord will not put more on me than I can bear. 
uh, that's not in the Bible, but uh, we claim it anyway. Um, you guys have been in the middle of a series called Jesus Says, where we've been, you've been interacting with some of the things that are cliche, right? And, but, but wondering, what does the Bible say about that? Um, my job this morning, um, as I've been praying and really seeking the Lord, is to give us a, a better glimpse of who God is. Is that all right? Um, before we get into the text, I kind of want to just set the stage. When I say the word dependence, what kinds of things come to your mind? For many of us, the word dependence makes us think of weakness. Because to depend on anyone in our self-made world means that we must be weak. Or perhaps you've been hurt or wronged by somebody. And, And the pain and the scars of your past scares you beyond belief to depend on anyone. Because to depend means you have to have faith and trust in someone, and you're never going to put yourself in that position again. Beloved, how you answer that question has major implications on your walk with Christ. The reality is we can't escape from our need to depend, but our experience heavily relies on who we depend on. A story is told of a kite that was flying. And this kite began to fly and push itself to new levels, and the kite began talking to itself. I want to go higher, it said. I I want to reach new levels. I want to fly above the clouds, but this string is holding me back. If I could just get rid of this string, I I could push myself to new levels, it said. Well, one day the kite got its wish. The string was severed, and the kite began to soar for all of two seconds. It began to plummet down to the ground. What the kite didn't know was that the same thing that he thought was limiting it was actually keeping it up. God wants you to trust him and let him hold the string of your life. It is only by being connected to him that we can be kept from falling. It is to that end that we must look into the text. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 11 through 24. Luke 15, starting at verse 11. When you have it, say, I got it. Right. I'll be reading from the ESV version, and it reads as follows. And he, that is Jesus, said, there is a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Everyone's reading of God's word. To properly understand this parable, we have to backtrack to verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we find that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, there are two groups of people. You got your tax collectors and the sinners and you got your Pharisees. Right. And we think of tax collectors. We normally think of people who charge a little bit more. Right. They charge 20. They only need a 10 and they pocket the other 10. But back at this time, Rome ruled all of the known world from England to India. Rome had it all. And how do you take care of a massive territory? But you need a massive army. See, if I wanted to right now, I could go to the nearest airport and fly to Florida in a matter of hours. But back at this time, a rebellion could break out in one part of your territory, and it would take you years to get there. And so this is Rome now. Rome was a brutal regime. Rome is known for taking over a city, crucifying men, women, and children on the way in so you knew that Rome had been there. So here's picture now, your next-door neighbor purchases the rights to tax you so that an army can stay in your town that is going to rape your wives, take your sons and kill them, brutalize your daughters. This is the tax collector. Not only that, but we have sinners. And we normally think of sinners like we do in church, right? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of those things are true. But back in this time, sinners were a class of people, those who had shameful professions, those who had deformities. The Bible bears this out in John chapter 9, right? You see the disciples coming to Jesus in John chapter 9 and asking him, who sinned this man or his parents? Because the man was born blind. Sinners. And so now here we are. The Pharisees have come and approached him, and and, and we got the Pharisees, right? The the Pharisees are the most externally righteous group of people on the face of the earth. They had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized it. I I can't read Leviticus half the time. They had it memorized. I'm by myself? All all right. (laughs) And and, and so these were the most externally righteous people at the time. So so maybe maybe you you wear a suit or you wear your best every Sunday. Maybe you wake up at 5 a.m. to pray. Maybe every single one of your posts on Instagram has a scripture underneath it. Maybe. But your righteousness is JV, junior varsity, never getting off the bench compared to these guys. And so now. Jesus, at the beginning of this passage, is questioned about why he's hanging out with these sinners. And as a response, he tells three stories, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. They share a common outline. A valuable, valuable possession is lost. That lost thing is recovered. And now a party is thrown to celebrate. Here is the punchline of all three lost 
people matter to God. So now in the story, right, we got the we got the prodigal son. The prodigal son uh, represents for us an example of sin and sound repentance. The older brother represents uh, illustrates for us the wickedness of religious people who are self-righteous or prejudiced or indifferent to repenting sinners. And the father pictures God eager to forgive and longing for the return of the sinner. In the context of the text, I want us to see three simple points. The first one is the father's grace and rebellion. The father's grace and rebellion. Now, you, you reread the story together. The, the younger son comes and he says, Daddy, give me what's coming to me. Now, this was unheard of in the first century. In ancient times, when a father died, the oldest son got a double portion. So the oldest son would have gotten two thirds of the estate and the younger son would have gotten one third. But that was when the father died. The prodigal son's request was a declaration of independence. This is where sin begins, beloved. Beyond sinful words or deeds, sin is a matter of the heart. It is a heart of rebellion that strives from independence of God's control and credit for our own lives. See, in Middle Eastern culture, to ask the inheritance while the father was living was to wish him dead. The first century hearers would have been appalled at this request because, listen, land, cattle, and the family name is all a family had. To request this from the father would have been a brutal act of disrespect. The father and his family would be humiliated in the community. It would have blow to the economic standing of the family since the father would have to sell a portion of everything. In short, this one request ripped the family apart. It was a relational and economic act of violence against the family's integrity. The younger son may have lived with the father. He may have even obeyed the father, but he never loved his father. The thing that he loved ultimately was the father's things. His heart was set on wealth and on comfort, freedom and status that wealth brings. See, to ask the father for the inheritance while he was still living would have been a shot through his father's heart. But he didn't care because to him, his father was a means to an end. How about you? How do you view God? Right. Parables are meant to help us find our place in the text. Do you see yourself in light of these things and, and wonder, how do you how do you see God? Is God a means to an end? Do you worship only to get things? What if God took away everything from you? What if you find yourself in the same situation Job was in? Will you still worship because he's worthy? Or do you need things to verify that relationship? That the younger son reveals to us the nature of sin. The first thing that sin is, the sin is functioning as if God was dead. Every time you sin, every time you fall short, you function as if God does not exist in your life. God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go live as if you were dead. Not only is sin functioning as if God is dead, sin is also independence. The nature of sin is independence. It's wanting to live life on your own terms. This is sin. See, there are some places where independence is of value, but the gospel and our walk with Christ is not one of them. 
when God says something, he requires complete dependence. We bend our will in subjection to his. Now, think with me. In Jesus' audience, you have two groups. You got tax collectors and sinners, and you got the Pharisees. These first century people were having two different reactions as he's telling this story. See, while the tax collectors and sinners can identify with the son, the Pharisees are sitting there like some of us in church. Preach it, Jesus. Talk, Jesus. You want to know your heart? Think about how you respond when the word of God is going forth. You think of you first or you think of someone else. Check your heart. Receive what God is saying to you and don't automatically think of someone else. This is, this is why John 4, the woman at the well, is such a, a crazy, just an extraordinary story. This was an extraordinary woman, a Samaritan woman, a race of people that the Jews despised because they felt like she had no claim to their God. But we find the story that she's going to the well in the middle of the day. Now, this was the social high point of a woman's day back at this time. But she's going where she can no longer be seen, wants to be hidden, wants to go by herself. She's living with the sixth and a string of men. And Jesus finds her. First thing he does is says, can you give me the drink? This encounter changes her life. We find that before their conversation is over, she's asking Jesus, give me this water that I might never have to come back here. She wants something that's temporary, but God says, no, I have more for you. There is something eternal. And he gives her a drink from the waters of living life. Now, how do we know? How do we know that she's been changed? Because the first thing she says is, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. The shame that once held her back from being around people fueled her now to tell others about Jesus. When you have been changed by the master, when you have been changed, your story doesn't become your shame. It becomes fuel to tell others about Jesus. See, the reality is it's easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to kill one of your own. So, Father, in the story, he's, he's shocked. He's been requested to divide his property. And first century hearers would have been shocked at the request, but more shocked at their response. Because this was a patriarchal society where reverence was expected of those who were older than you. This request, I have a son. His name's Shane. He's seven years old. He comes to me with this type of stuff. I'm going to have a prison ministry on the inside. Y'all pray for me. A request like this would have been met with outrage. But here's how scandalous this is. The father gives the son what he asked for. Look again at verse 12. I want you to see this. It says, and the younger son, excuse me, and the younger of them came to his father. Father, give me the property that is coming to me. Here it is. And he divided his property between them. That word property is the Greek word bios. It means life. Why would the Bible say that he divided his life between them? It's trying to give us a glimpse of what it's like for the father to have to honor this request. In one question, he loses his land his family's good name, status, and one of his two sons. The father is asked to tear his very life apart. And hear me, he does. 
This is the portion of the story we often overlook. God and his grace will let you exhaust yourself. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who was blessed forever. God gave them up. God will allow you to exhaust yourself. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Having received his inheritance, the the prodigal didn't just move out of the father's house. He moved out of the father's country. It was not enough to move to the other side of the city He needed to move to the other side of the world. The term far country means a pagan land. It is a complete rejection of the father's system. He no longer wanted to submit to the father's rules. He no longer wanted to receive the father's permission. He no longer wanted to abide by the father's curfew. He was his own man. This is a story of every prodigal. We want to control our own lives and live independent of God. Growing up, um, my grandmother dragged me to church. When I say dragged me, I mean every Sunday dragged me to church. And this isn't like the convenient, you know, hour of power type of churches we have now. This was a marathon. (laughs) 9.30 Sunday school. Sunday school to about 11 o'clock. Then after 11 o'clock, they had this little break in between where they would fellowship and have some breakfast. They'd eat. Then the church service would begin. Church wasn't out till about three. When you were done at that time, sometimes they had second service. And if they had a second service, you were there all night. This is the type of church I grew up in. And so now... Imagine now this is a family type of church. So you begin to know people. And so in my journey, I began to see others and see their error and see their sin. But they'd walk up to the altar every Sunday, pray and and do all kinds of stuff. But they were still living the same lifestyle. So I grew up and I said, man, I don't want that. If this is Christianity, I don't want it. So I get to college I'm out from underneath grandma's roof. You know, the first thing I was not going to do, go to church. First two years of college, I I lived my life the way I wanted to. I was caught up in what I call the three B's. The ball field, I I was playing basketball for college. The the billfold, I wanted to get some money in the bedroom. I was a womanizer. And God in his grace said, you think that's better than me? Go ahead. First two years of college, exhausted myself, thought this thing could fulfill me, thought that every time I hit a jumper, I was good. Thought that every time I got a girl to come to my room, I was good. Thought that if I had more money in my bank account, I was good. And God said, you think that's better? I found myself exhausted. I found myself trying so hard to fill a void in my heart that nothing else could fill. And then when I came to the end of myself there, God found me. See, sin, brothers and sisters, is momentary. 
Not only is sin functioning as if God was dead, not, not only is it wanting life on our own terms, but thirdly, the nature of sin is living in the moment. It is this notion that what we want right now is going to sustain us. It is foolish and a passionate longing for the temporary over what will last. The prodigal son had fun in the far country. Don't let any preacher or anybody ever tell you that sin isn't fun. The sin isn't pleasurable. If it isn't, you're doing it wrong. The Bible never says that sin isn't pleasurable. It just says that Jesus is better. So the prodigal had fun. He spent everything, though. He emptied his accounts. He maxed out his credit cards. The friends he once hooked up cannot be found when he called them. A recession hit the far country, and the prodigal found himself in desperate need. The party was over. This is the dilemma that confronts the life of sin. Being lost can be fun, but it will not last. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 says this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, than to enjoy, hear this, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable, but sin is fleeting. In the economy of Scripture, the true, the true valuables are the ones that last the longest. The sinful pleasures of the far country are never worth what they cost because they're only temporary. See, foolishness may interest you for a while, but it won't last. Greed may thrill you for a while, but it won't last. Immorality may gratify you for a while, but it won't last. The nightlife, clubbing every single weekend, I can testify, will excite you for a while, but it won't last. What you pour in your cup may stimulate you for a while, but it won't last. Ungodly companions may please you for a while, but it won't last. Worldly pleasures may satisfy you for a while, but it won't last. This is why the songwriter would say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So now we, we see that the son has gone away. He's taken what he's wanted. He's gone to the far country. Think back, though. There's still a father at home. And see, by bearing the weight of this offense, instead of taking revenge or inflicting pain, he leaves the relationship open to reconciliation. True love caused this father to allow his son to take advantage of him. The father loved him and wanted a relationship based on love. And hear me, this is the heartbeat of God. God wants us to have a personal relationship based on love. For that to happen, God has to allow us to be free enough to reject him. To win our hearts, God must subject himself to a broken heart. To have a relationship with us based on love, he must put himself in a position where he can be taken advantage of. Then the revelation happens. It says here in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in grandma's house and, and grandma didn't play no games. And if there was a time where I ever got in trouble, I did exactly what this man did. I started rehearsing my speech. What had happened was, Grandma, I, there were no clocks in my friend's house, so I didn't know what time it was. And, and then the wrath of God <laughs> came down on sinful man. But here, he starts rehearsing 
his speech. The last time the prodigal saw his father, he demanded his inheritance, and now he will beg for a job. Life caught up with him and stripped him of his pride. Working harder in the pig pen will not fix the situation. He needed to go home. This is a deliverance that redeems the life of sin. And God is saying to you, come home. Story is told of a high schooler. This high schooler got into an argument with his parents. And they, he stormed out of the house, got into his car, and drove away. Sometime later, he began to feel some remorse, but he didn't want to face them. He had too much shame, so he wrote a letter. And he requested that if his parents would forgive him, they would hang blue sheets, the blue sheets in his room, over the window of his, of his room, so he could see it when he would drive by the next day. To his astonishment, the next day he drives by and he sees that not only were the blue sheets in the window, but the family dyed every sheet in the house blue to tell him to come home. Dear friends, God did not hang sheets on a line, but he hung his son on a cross to declare he is waiting for you to come home. Now, again, who's in the crowd? We are coming to the part of the story where the son wants to be back in. You think the tax collectors aren't wondering how much that's going to cost? You think the the prostitute isn't wondering what's that going to, what do I have to give up for this? See, I know the tax collectors are wondering what it costs, but I think that the Pharisees were hoping that it costed a pretty penny. But what happens? The father doesn't even acknowledge the speech. He doesn't accept restitution. He just restores the relationship. He takes the weight of the offense in himself, and he gives them some things, right? He gives them a ring, which is symbolic of being restored to the family. He gives them his robe, symbolic of his cleanliness. And he gives them shoes because servants go barefoot, but a son has at least some shoes on his feet. See, to the father, even though the son ripped the family apart, Even though the son wanted to be outside of the father's control, even though the son's choices in life changed his overall condition, it never stopped the relationship. He was still his father's son. What the son did not realize was that everything about him was burnt on the father's consciousness. Every feature had been treasured in his dear father's memory, and he wept over it repeatedly. Think about this. We don't know how long he was gone. We don't know the pain that the father had to experience day after day after day, wondering if this is going to be the day that my son comes home. And he has to take his life now and continue to work the two thirds of the ground that he had left and begin to make the most of it, wondering if this is going to be the day. He still has to manage his household. Life goes on despite the pain you may experience. And he's looking over the horizon every single day. Even more, the father had been daily scanning the horizon for his lost son. When the father saw his returning son, he was moved with compassion, not anger, not disgust, not apprehension. Family, this is our God. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach 
repentance. Move with compassion. The father ran. First century men of status and wealth did not run. It made them look crazy. Now, we didn't, they didn't wear stuff that we wear today. So they had like a robe and a gown and, and, and he had to tie this belt around him. So to run, literally, he had to lift up his skirt and run. But the father does not care. The father is willing to lose his dignity to go reach out to his son. He overtook his son. He embraced him. He showered him with kisses. And once they caught their rehearsal or caught the composure, the boy started preparing his rehearsal speech. This is the restoring grace of God. No one has gone so far that they cannot come home. The finished work of Christ has paid the price for you to be restored to God. So, family, what is keeping you from God? Let me give you the right answer in four words. It does not matter. Come home to God and be restored. But not only do we see the Father's grace in the face of rebellion, but we see the Father's grace in religion. The father had two sons. Now, there's a party that has started. And I don't know about you, but I've been to some parties. The safe place. Can I tell on myself? Okay. I've been to some parties. There are some parties where, where the gentlemen stand on the wall and make sure that the infrastructure is right and they hold up the wall. But there are some parties where you go in and it is live. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, this is a party party. This is how we know, because the Bible says that while he was still a far way off, he heard music and dancing. I mean, they was in there doing the electric slide and all kinds of stuff, right? This is the party that is blown up. And the first thing that the older brother does is talk to the servants about what's going on. Last I checked, he lived there. Last I checked, his father ruled the household. You want to know your heart? You want to know if self-righteousness has gripped your heart? Think about if you're more willing to talk to the servants than talk to daddy about what's going on. See, the older brother should have said, why didn't no one tell me my brother was home? Instead, he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother was not angry with the prodigal for coming home. He probably expected it. At some point, he knew his brother. The prodigal's actions put him in danger and at risk, though. And the father had overlooked the prodigal's transgressions. Hear me, pride will keep you from the party. He was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. Now, this is where I have to tell on myself a little bit. Me and my wife, we've been married uh, for seven years now. Uh, Best thing that ever happened to me. And um, sometimes we get into what I like to call heated fellowship. Hey, hey, (laughs) can can I be honest with you? Um, She wins all of them because if I lose the argument, I lose. And if I win the argument, I lose. Because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody. Tell the truth now. She ain't the devil. Um, And it's in those arguments that sometimes I do something that I look back on and just have to shake my head. 
I refuse to talk or fellowship with my wife because I'm mad. I refuse to let her experience my awesomeness. And although she has never said this, I'm willing to bet that at the time, this doesn't bother her one bit. Who is outside of the party and who's affected by the brother's anger? Only himself. But listen, the younger brother came back home and the father greeted him on him coming back. The older brother is lost even though he's in the house. The older brother is still lost even though he's been with the father the whole time. And hear me, the father comes out and entreats him. The word entreat means to beg, to beseech. The father goes out to bring his son back in. See, in the first parable, the shepherd goes out for the sheep, finds it. In the second parable, the woman searches the house, finds a lost coin. But when the prodigal comes back from the far country, the father did not search for him. Yet when the older brother refused to join the separation, the father did not wait for him to come to himself. The father goes out and gets the older brother. Here's 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 what this means, right? He was separated from the father and needed to be restored. The fact that you've never traveled to the far country does not mean that things are right between you and the father. You can be home but separated from the father. You can be moral yet unredeemed. You can be religious yet lost. You can be in church and still be unsaved. Jesus is telling the crowd that the older brother is just as lost. And Pharisees knew this was a total reversal of all they believed. What is keeping the older brother out? It's right there in the text. Look at verse 29. When he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the older brother isn't lost In spite of his good behavior, he's lost because of it. Sin doesn't keep him out, but rather righteousness. Another way to know if you are an older brother is if deep in your heart you believe that obeying God means he's in your debt. A religious person obeys God to get control over him. To get things from him. A Christian obeys because he has God. To love and to please him. See, even in his dis, excuse me, even in his obedience, the older brother is proving to his father that it was never really the father that he loved. This is the scandalous nature of grace. See, we are on the side of the prodigal usually. We want God to judge the self-righteous. But God loves the older brother just as much as he loves the prodigal son. The father explains how much the older brother mattered to him by affirming his presence and his property. Son, you are always with me. More important than partying with his friends, he had the presence of his father. The father had never forsaken the older brother. And unlike the prodigal son, the older brother had never forsaken his father. Yet he was with him and not with him. At the same time, his body was home and his heart was somewhere else. So I love you enough to do this. There are some signs that you might be an older brother. The first one is a deep anger. Verse 28 says he became 
angry. See, older brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable and good life if they try hard and live up to his standards. If you're the kind of person that when life doesn't go your way, you get angry, you are forgetting Jesus. He lived a better life than any one of us, yet he prays, Father, if this be your will, let this cup pass from me. You know what the father said? No. Not only did he have a deep anger, he had a depressed obedience. Verse 29 says, I have been slaving for you. Older brothers obey God as a means to an end, as a way to get the things they really love. Older brothers find obedience joyless and mechanical. When you serve, do you get joy out of serving or do you do it because you think this is what you're supposed to be doing? Not only that, look at verse 30. He says, this son of yours. Last time I checked the family tree, but that's his brother. Help me out now. The older son will not even own his brother. Older brothers are too disdainful of people who are unlike themselves to be effective in evangelism. Older brothers pride themselves in their doctrinal stances and moral purity and unavoidably feel superior than others because they have right believing. Hear me, right doctrine is good. Right believing is good, but if your belief does not affect your behavior, you have the wrong gospel. Not only that, he had a distrust of his father's love. Verse 29, you never threw me a party. As long as you are trying to earn salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure you're good enough. What are the signs of this? Every time something goes wrong in your life, you may wonder if it's a punishment. Another sign is you have irresolvable guilt. Hear me, family. If God wanted to, he couldn't pour out any wrath on you. He poured it all out on Jesus. There is nothing left for you. Jesus steps in and takes all the wrath of God so that you and I don't have to experience any of it. Lastly, he has a discretionary spirit. The older brother does not want the father to forgive the younger brother. Older brothers judge based on their strengths and say things like, I would never do that. Here's where I want to close. Remember with me, Jesus told these three parables together. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In each of the first two parables, the Something is lost. Someone goes out and searches for it. And when it comes back, it brings the home joy. Right? The shepherd goes out and finds the lost sheep. The woman searches until she finds the lost coin. But in this parable, someone should have gone out for the prodigal son. Yet no one does. And first century hearers would know this. It should have been the older brother. He was in charge of his family's estate, yet he never goes. Jesus is leading us to ask, who should have gone out? And first century hearers would have said, it's the older brother. Here's the good news. We have a true older brother. We needed an older brother who would not just go into the far country, but would come all the way down from heaven to earth to find us. We needed one who would not just open up his wallet for us, but pour out his life for us. We needed one who would not just pay a finite cost, but an infinite debt of the life of sin that you and I indulged in. 
to bring us back to God's family. And hear me, his name is Jesus. How do we get the father's robe? Because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. How do we get the father's feast? Because Jesus took the cup of wrath that you and I might experience the cup of joy. How do we get the father's acceptance? Because Jesus took the rejection in our place. We can be accepted. Jesus is our true older brother. In 1929, there was a man named George Wilson. He robbed a mail carrier and killed him. He was sentenced to die, but received the presidential pardon. To the shock of the Oval Office, he rejected the pardon. The president of the United States had set him free, but Mr. Wilson said no. This case went to the Supreme Court. The issue was this. If a president gives you a pardon, aren't you pardoned? Can you reject a pardon from a sovereign? Justice Marshall rendered the decision, said a pardon rejected is no pardon at all. Unless the recipient of the pardon accepts, then that pardon cannot be applied. In other words, this pardon has two sides. There's the offerer and the offeree. And hear me, on the cross, the eternal God, our Father, having satisfied by the death of his son, has offered every man, woman, boy, and girl a pardon that you have to accept. This story means nothing unless you are invited into the family. So this morning... I want you to search your heart. Figure out where you stand with God. God forbid something happened to you today. Do you know that you will be met in the Father's loving arms? That you can can live what we sang about this morning. Wrap me in your arms. Do you know? We have a loving Father who is willing to accept. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've gone. I don't care who you did it with. God knows and he loves you. We have a true older brother named Jesus who has gone through everything to accept you on God's behalf. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you that you look over the balcony of heaven like that father did for every single lost child of yours. But you sent our older brother to come down from heaven to earth to seek and save that which was lost. Thank you for valuing us when we didn't see value in ourselves. Thank you for loving us when we deemed ourselves unlovable. So God, I pray for these, your people. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, God, you would make it so uncomfortable for them until they give their life to Jesus. But we thank you that you can encourage us with, our, with your relationship with us, that you are a loving Father. We can't do anything to make it right. You've done it all for us. And we rejoice today knowing that we're in right relationship with you. In Christ's name and for sake, I do pray. Those who agree with that prayer, say amen.